I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Jigger Shaw, the co-founder of Generate Capital. Jigger is one of the most well-known entrepreneurs and investors in the world of climate tech. He helped pioneer a financial model that allowed solar to scale massively in the U.S. He's been responsible for financing billions of dollars in clean energy projects. Today, he runs the Loan Program Office at the U.S. Department of Energy, directing the power of the government to finance zero-carbon energy. Jigger is also the former co-host of The Energy Gang, the show where what it takes got its start. In this conversation, we dig into Jigger's wide-ranging career, his philosophy on building climate wealth, and why entrepreneurs should avoid taking dumb money. I love this interview for Jigger's brazen ambition and his deeply human vulnerability. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2018. Um, So there's some people who you can imagine as a child. Jigger, for me, you are not one of those people. Like, it's hard to imagine you. (laughs) It's hard to imagine you as a kid. So tell me about little Jigger. Where were you born and what were you like? Oh, wow. Um, Well, thanks for having me. This is great. I um, So my parents uh, came to this country on one of those sort of visa programs. My dad's a physician. And... um, my mom actually went back to India to have me, so I'm sort of the opposite of an anchor baby, um, which is probably a derogatory term around here. Um, I, um, and so I was born in India, so I wasn't a U.S. citizen, and um, grew up there for like a year and then came over here, and then when my brother was born, we went back for a year, and uh, so I was there for a year and then came back. Um, so it, it was sort of a more unconventional uh, upbringing. I, you know, I'd say that the thing about being born um, to immigrant parents, particularly from India, is that like the the whole like sort of rules around safety are very weird. So like growing up, like I don't know that my mom cared all that much for my safety. Like, <laughs> like, so I used to do really weird things. Like I remember we grew up in. Um, in Chicago Ridge, where my dad was doing his residency, and uh, um, the downstairs basement was a uh, concrete floor, and so where they um, where the laundry machines were. So when my mom did laundry, we would like she would slap on roller skates. I'd roller skate down there, and then um, I'd still want to roller skate, and so she'd come upstairs, and I'd only make it up with roller skates on, like like two flights of stairs, and then I'd get tired and go to sleep on the staircase, and then. Um, <laughs> And then someone would, like, pick me up and take me home. Um, so, but I, I still did end up, like, growing up with my original parents. But, mm-hmm. like, um, it was touch and go there for a second. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, tell us a bit about high school days and then what you were up to in college. Yeah, so my dad um, moved us to rural Illinois. It was pretty common in the 70s where Indian doctors would take jobs that nobody else wanted in rural areas. And... Um, so he practiced in a town of 800 people, and then we lived in a town of around um, 10,000. Um, it, was, it was really interesting. So the town that I grew up in, Sterling, Illinois, um, 
once hosted the seventh largest steel mill in the country. Um, and so we had all of these like platinum plated infrastructure projects, right? Like whether it was like 27 ten- tennis courts for only a town of like 10,000, or we had like these great park districts or whatever else. But like, it was all like going downhill at the time that I grew up. So like the steel mill was shutting mm-hmm. down and like all those things were occurring. Many of these ghosts have like come back to haunt us mm-hmm. in 2016. Um, but, but like, it was such a great place to grow up, right? Because there was like the family that owned the steel mill and they were the big benefactor of the town. And so like the town had all these things, but we were really small. And so everybody knew each other. And so it was a great place to grow up. It was one of those places where you didn't lock your doors and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, the, I, I learned later that my high school education was horrible. Um, <laughs> but um, I didn't know it. I think I did okay coming mm-hmm. out of high school, so... Were you, were you aware of how white the community was that you were in, not being white, or was that not an issue as a child? So it was a really weird thing. So um, I certainly appreciated that it was a white community, but, um, but a third of our town was Hispanic. Hmm. So they had imported a whole bunch of Hispanic people into town to do whatever jobs they imported them to do. Um, and because we were a big farming community as well, because we're in rural Illinois. And um, um, and it wasn't until I was in high school that I learned that, like, half of those folks were illegal. Um, at the time, like, you don't, you grow up and you go to school and a bunch of folks are there and you're all friends. But, um, like, there was this big accident. Folks died in, like, a car accident. And, and we found out on the news that all these folks were illegal. But, like, um, yeah, it was a weird place to grow up, like, rural Illinois. And, like, you know, you get, like, thrust in all these news, news issues and news items. I'm not sure I recognized it at the time, but... Mm-hmm. Um, and then tell us about the years leading up to Sun Ed. What were you up to? I know BP and... Yeah, so I learned about solar energy in high school and then went to college knowing I wanted to work in renewable energy. And so I got an engineering degree because when I interviewed like folks uh, in high school, like people said, well, you can't really work in renewable energy unless you have an engineering degree. So... Um, so I got an engineering degree. For those of you who know me, like I'm not the best engineer, so um, <laughs> there really wasn't like a great fit per se. But um, but I passed, and so that was that was good. Um, and I got I got lucky. I got an internship with um, Alan Barnett at Astropower uh, while I was in college, and so that was an awesome experience. And that's how I met like Howard Wenger and all those guys who you know are that Astropower mafia. Um, who then became, I think, the Sun Power Mafia. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, I, the whole move was great. And then I worked for a wind energy company in Vermont and then moved back down to D.C. to be closer to my wife and then um, worked you know, as a Beltway Bandit uh, for Department of Energy and then, um, and then got the job at BP, um, which was, like, the most incredible thing you, you could ask for. So, um, yeah, it was it was a weird thing. It was one of those things. But back then, I remember like applying for jobs out of college, and it was just I think I just got the CIA like directory, and I think I sent out like 143, you know, resumes or whatever to everybody that would look right because nobody was hiring not in like 1996. So. What what made BP such a good place to be? So BP at the time that I joined them had just bought Amico. And Amico owned 50% of SolarX. And um, SolarX, for those of you who don't know, is like basically the pioneer that basically invented polycrystalline uh, solar, right? So before that, pretty much everyone else did monocrystalline solar. Um, and, um, and then they 
interestingly enough, the other 50% was owned by Enron. So they bought the other 50% from Enron. And so after they bought it, they became the largest solar company in the world, right? So they were, I think we had 32 megawatts of total global production. Um, and, uh, and so it was extraordinary. And um, yeah, and it was, and so you can imagine, like, when you're the largest manufacturer in the world, like, all the consultants came through BP Solar, right? So Bob Johnson and Paula Mintz, who were, you know, by far the, like, most credible, like, forecasters in the industry at the time. And, and then, you know, like, all of the folks who had interesting pitches, like any of the entrepreneurs who wanted, like, someone to buy their stuff, right, would come through. And so you saw the coolest stuff all the time. And not just in solar. I remember, like, we saw tons of fuel cell presentations and tons of wind energy presentations and, you know, and other things. And so it was the best place to work. And then when you work at the largest company, then, like, everyone takes your phone calls. So, like, when I call people, they're like, oh, you're from Beefy Solar. I'll respond. And, you know, and I was like, whatever, like 26 or something or 25. So, like, wasn't even, like, they shouldn't have called me back, but they did anyway. So, that was great. When did you first have the idea for SunEd? How old were you? Were you still at BP? Yeah, so I joined BP in December of 1999. I wrote the business plan for Sun Edison before that. So, I... um. I, w- I did my MBA part-time um, at the University of Maryland, and it was for one of those classes. Um, and Sun Edison was a class project. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was a class project. And I didn't get an F like the guys are at FedEx or What'd whatever you get? else. Like, I got an A. But my, <laughs> you know, obviously. But who's, who's counting? I wasn't in engineering school anymore. Um, so, um, but I remember my professor saying to me, because this was like, um, I think in 1998, or maybe it was maybe it was the first semester in 1999. Um, my professor was like, "This is a great business plan, you know, but there's no chance that it's going to get funded because, you know, like this is the dot com boom. Like everyone is just creating an internet website and then getting eyeballs and going public. Like, why would anyone invest in infrastructure projects, right? And so, so that's why, like, I you know put on the shelf and got a job at BP, and it was a great choice to do that. But um, but but yeah, like it was like not anything that anyone wanted to hear about was like physical infrastructure. And when did you take the idea off the shelf and embark um, on that journey? Yeah, so in two thousand and three, um, BP was going through this like massive restructuring. I remember like um, they sent someone down from um, from London, and you know he basically said everyone's got to reapply for their job. And so I was like, well, this is a good time to get a package. And so then I uh, <laughs> so I didn't apply for any jobs, and you know they assigned me a job. I was like, what? <laughs> and, and so then um, I ended up having to quit and like actually start Sun Edison without a package. So, <laughs> so I, start, I left in September of 2003. Gotcha. And did you have co-founders at the time? Were you doing this on your own? So I started it in January of 2003. Um, and then uh, my first phone call was to Chris Cook, um, who at the time was already sort of the you know smartest guy in the country at regulatory affairs. Like he's just, I mean, he's still like, the guy who like made net metering functional invented all the SREC markets, um, and so he was my first co-founder. And then, um, and then Claire Broido, who's now Claire Broido Johnson, um, um, had done an informational interview with us at BP, and I was like, "Well, everyone's applying for their own job, so I don't think it's going to work out for you." Um, but he, she was at Constellation and uh, formerly of Enron, and so I called her up, um, and so she joined soon after that. 
Um, and so the three of us started the company, and then Brian Robertson came on the next the next year. Where did the money come from? Uh, my home equity line of credit. Nice. How did your wife feel about that? Uh, you know, honestly, she was extraordinary about it. So, like, um, I think, look, thinking back on it, like, I'm not sure we stressed out about it as much as we probably should have. Because <laughs> um, she was, like, making, like, no money. She was... Um, she was. She had just graduated from her master's degree, and she was a um, presidential fellow at the Office of Management and Budget. And I think it's like a GS seven position or GS nine position. And so, like, like I think we were making like thirty grand a year or something. And we had just bought a house, and obviously because we had this home equity line. And um, yeah, so I don't know what we were thinking, but um, it was a home equity line of credit, and then like we had like twenty grand of savings. Wow. And uh, how long before you raised capital for SunEd? Almost two years. I mean, we didn't raise our first round until, um, well, our first official round was in 2006, but we raised a bunch of, like, angel money, like, in sort of May of 2005. How much, do you remember how much an angel funding you raised? It was, like, 800000 bucks or something. I remember, like, we had a bunch of legal bills to pay off after mm-hmm. we closed the Goldman um, fund, and... Um, and so there had been people who wanted to invest in us before then. And, you know, like, I mean, I, I mean, looking back on it, I think we were a little bit crazy. Like, I just, um, like, we just never got paid. So none of us actually took a yourselves. paycheck. Okay. Yeah, like none of the four of us took a paycheck. And then um, we got a little bit of money here and there when we sold projects and that kind of stuff. But, like, um, yeah, I just, like, it, it, it never occurred to me that we didn't have any money. Like, I just remember, like, we got this um, law firm bill, and we were like, $350,000. That's crazy. Like, <laughs> we're not going to pay that, right? And then, and then we're like, oh, I guess we do have to pay it. And so then we raised some angel money to pay it. But like, yeah. Gotcha. Um, and so you said, so it sounds like a lot of organic growth early on. Who were your first customers, and how did you get them? So we signed up folks right away. The reason why I left... Um, BP and started San Edison was that we um, we had c- closed Whole Foods in August of 2003. So then I was like, well, I guess we should start a company so we could actually, um, like, well, we had st- started the company in January, but we hadn't signed the operating agreement, so I didn't legally have the right to sign the contract, <laughs> and so we were like, oh, we should do that. Um, um, and so that's when I left and started the company. And then we signed Staples, like, the next month, and then Ikea a month after that. And so, like, it was... It was definitely like an idea whose time had come because I think, you know, Powerlight obviously, you know, was in business already. And I think they had done a lot of the work, right? They had gone to all these companies and said, hey, you should pay $2 million in cash for the solar system. And um, and they convinced them that solar wasn't going to, like, you know, destroy their roof or set the building on fire or whatever it is that the customers worried about. Mm-hmm. And so all we had to do was go in and say, well, here's how you can get past your CFO and get it approved, <laughs> right? And so I remember that's exactly what the first customer at Whole Foods wanted to do. He was just like, I really want to do this. And they keep telling me no. And I'm like, well, I think I can get them to say yes. And so then, you know, he signed the contract. And so um, so it, the customers came fast and furiously. Like um, the financing took forever, right? The financing took much longer. And we thought that would be faster. With Goldman. Yeah, so that didn't close until 2005, and so we had some, a couple of high net worth individuals to do the first couple projects, um, but, but yeah, like we didn't, um, yeah, I, I would have thought that the customers would have been harder to get than the financing, mm-hmm. but it was the other way around. Gotcha. 
Uh, were you intentional about finance and business model innovation versus tech innovation? Did you think of it that way at the time? I know you think of it that way now. Um, yeah, you know, I don't, obviously, I, obviously I, I couldn't articulate it at the time. Um, but I certainly, I certainly understood, even from my internship at, at AstroPower, that we had all these customers who would, like, call us a lot. Like, they would, like, I remember this rancher in particular in, like, Oklahoma, and he was like, I really want to buy solar. And these were five-watt panels that we'd put on their fence to, like, electrify the fence because um, it was, like, you know, 80000 bucks to connect it to the grid, right? So, um, so we were cheaper. And I just remember, like, as much as he wanted to buy the solar, like, he was just like, I just can't do it this month, right? Like, like my tractor just broke down, and so, like, I got to fix that first. And this just happened, and my son wants to go to, like, you know, like, summer camp or whatever it was. Like, that was more important than buying the solar system, right? And so you could tell that there were all these people that were super, like, excited about buying renewable energy, but that they didn't really have the ability to prioritize it in their like capital budget, right? And so I remember even when I talked to the CFO of um, that region of Whole Foods, because um, Whole Foods was a very decentralized organization at the time. Um, and she was just like, $600,000, that's what it costs us to build a new Whole Foods. Like, why would we put solar on the roof when, like, we could just build a new Whole Foods? And at the time, they were, like, building, like, one a month or something, um, or probably two a month. So, yeah. Um, and as you're setting all this up and you're getting these amazing customers early on and growing somewhat organically, how do you know how to do all of this? I know you got an MBA and you got this engineering degree, but how did you know what to do? I stayed at a Holiday Inn, like, the night before. <laughs> um, that's the secret? <laughs> yeah. No, um, no, clearly I didn't know what I was doing, right? I mean, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those weird things. Like, I mean, I, I have this now with, you know, we have this great team at Generate Capital, and um, I get these questions from folks who, you know, work for us now. And, like, it's, it's one of those things where um, we don't have the answers. Like, I remember Goldman said to me, like, um, well, what's the residual value of solar, right? And I was like, I don't know. And they're like, well, why don't you know? And I was like, well, because I don't think anyone's ever sold solar panels in a residual market because they last forever and people love them. And so, like, they don't really come down, right? So um, so I remember, like, looking around the world for all the transactions, and I found, like, eight transactions, and I wrote them all up and said, well, here's what happened. And, like, it was like this resort in Belize that had installed this hundred and 10 kilowatt like solar system with Siemens panels and then um, they got hit by a hurricane and the Siemens panels I think were actually fine after the hurricane there were like a few damaged ones but the rest were fine and Siemens like recertified them and then we sold them in the secondary market so we had like eight data points and we wrote a big white paper and sent it to Goldman um, and we did that a lot like there were just like all these questions that people asked and I was like uh, I don't know but like we'll go find the answer, right? And we'll just go out and look it up and like write it up, right? And so like it it wasn't um we just sort of like kept going through the process. Like right? we just kept iterating um until we got something done. And and it I, I don't know that people expect anything different from us, but we certainly weren't overwhelmed by the process. We just were like, well this is what it is. Like you just keep working the problem until it gets solved. 
So at you, you're figuring it out. You're making it, faking it until you make it. And then you get to the peak of Sunad. What does the peak look like? Well, I mean, I don't know that we actually hit a peak. I think, you know, the peak happened after I sold the company. But, like, I think, um, um, well, the thing about Sun Edison that was interesting to me was we never, we never took ourselves that seriously. Like, I remember, like, um, while I was CEO, we never paid for exhibitor space. Like, I always thought that was odd. Like, we'd go to, like, these, like, SPI or whatever else, and people would have ex- exhibit space. And I was like, what do you want me to do? Like, sit in a chair for, like, two days and, like, wait for people to come by my booth? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And so, like, but, and then people would say to me, like, but Jigger, this is how you support the industry. Like, this is what you do. You have a booth, and it's nice, and then you do this stuff or whatever else. And, like, I just, like, I was so young, like I was 28, and I remember like everyone who worked for me was the same age as me, so we were all 28. And then, and like, and so, like, we never thought about like, oh, like, you know, we should like, we've, we've, like, we're more exciting now. We're, we've peaked. We should have a party here. We should like, you know, have an exhibit or like, whatever. Like, we just, like, we just, like, that wasn't interesting to us. Like, we just rolled up our sleeves and did stuff, right? And so, like, because at the time, I remember, like, there was tons of policy getting passed, right? Like, RPS standards were, like, going crazy, right? So you had the amendment in 2004, I think, in um, Colorado, and then you had the New Jersey SREC market that was getting fixed, and um, the California, um, uh, in 2007, we had passed the CSI program, and we had, like, all this stuff that we were doing, and I, we just didn't have time to, like, celebrate our success. We were just, like, like always diving into some problem that we had to solve. I remember, like, for the California Solar Initiative, I don't know if any of you guys remember this, but the solar industry split into two halves, right? Like, like they couldn't get along. And so there was um, ASPV. It's, like, Americans for Solar Power or something. And then there was, like, this other group, like... Um, I don't know what it was called, but like CR or something. And, <laughs> and, and so there were two different groups like lobbying the state of California. And we were the only company that was allowed to be members of both groups. Like nobody else was allowed because they hated each other so much. Like the other group, like they wouldn't allow cross, um, cross like membership. The only reason they allowed us is because they wanted access to Chris Cook. And we're like, well, the only way you could do that is if we're members of both organizations. And, um, and so, yeah, like I don't remember us like ever like thinking that we had hit sort of peak Sun Edison. Like mm-hmm. I remember us just like slogging like mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. In true startup form, um, how many employees, what was the, the top number of employees or that the total number of employees? I don't know, actually. I think it, it, we were definitely like over 500. And because um, if you remember, like the contractor industry was so unreliable. Like I remember like when we built our first project like we hired this contractor and then they just didn't show up and we were like well why didn't you show up well because we had a cash sale and so we did that one first and we just decided not to like like do yours and um <laughs> and so like so it was just like crazy and so i remember calling up my friend brian jacklick and like at the end of 2004 we merged with new vision technologies um, which was, you know, one of the leading providers in uh, Southern California. So that's why Sun Edison was so huge in SCE's territory and not PG&E's territory. It was because we, like, had, we had merged with New Vision Technologies, and so we were like, well, we might as well just focus on Southern California Edison, mm-hmm. right? And, um, 
And then I remember we won the California Power Authority bid, which was like the largest contractor contract of all time. It was like 3.2 megawatts or something. <laughs> and um, and um, um, and so then we bought Team Solar because they were up in Sacramento and we needed like folks in the Northern California. And then we just kept buying contractors because like we just couldn't get them to focus on our stuff mm-hmm. unless mm-hmm. like we bought them. And so so then like I think we were like we bought five contractors and then and then we just kept hiring people and stuff. And it wasn't until 2007, maybe I mean, like the end of 2007 that people started becoming reliable and being like, oh, you're actually a valued customer. We would love to like serve you and like, you know, like build projects for you, et cetera. And so then then we just like we had attrition like we. Like, you know, like, no matter how good of an employer you are, like, in the contractor world, it's like, you know, their brother, like, is building a house, and they're like, hey, why don't you come help me build a house, and then you lose them. And so we just stopped replacing people who, like, left. Um, And then, you know, then we had our project managers left, and then we, you know, went that way. But, yeah, I mean, it was was so weird, though. I remember, like, I remember having conversations about, like, health care. People were like, like wait, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing... I mean, it's still, like, I still have these conversations today. I'm like, why am I responsible for healthcare? Um, like, it makes no sense that, like, I have to have some PhD in, like, all these, like, healthcare plans. Um, but, like, yeah, and I was like... And I remember, like, them telling me, like, oh, we have 453 people. And I'm like, what? How do we get the money people? Um, <laughs> and, like, yeah, and everyone, like, was, like, like needed Kaiser. And I was like, who cares? You don't live in California. You don't know. You got to have Kaiser. I'm like, okay, I guess we have to have Kaiser. Like that's sort of how it is. Like, but it was like all the sorts of weird stuff like that that we had to like go through. Gotcha. And at that point, how much capital had you raised? So our first round was um, in in June of 2006, and so um, Vantage Point came to us and really wanted to fund us, and um, we were like, well, we don't need the money, but. Then my business partner said, well, when they offer you money, you should take it. It says, okay. Um, so, then, so, then, um, so then our board was like, well, let's look around. And Riverstone offered us a term sheet. And then, and then Goldman had already told us that they didn't want to give us money. Um, but then when we got to the finish line with Riverstone and Vantage Point, they're like, okay, fine, we'll fund you. So then, so then we took Goldman's money. And it um, was not my first choice, but sort of is what it is. Um, and, and so that was $26.1 million, um, which I don't know why we needed that much money, but like... Um, was that the first round you, the first real the first round you raised yeah. was 26? Yeah. And so it landed in our bank account. And then we had to like, I remember our banker coming to us saying, well, we have to do cash management strategies. And I was like, what is that? And they're like, <laughs> we invest it for you in like money market funds and stuff like that. So that like it's not sitting there making $0. And yeah, it was like, it was a little crazy. Um, but it came in handy because then we built the Alamosa project. And at the time, like construction financing and all that stuff mm-hmm. was really difficult. So we basically built it on balance sheet. Hmm. Wow. And then like we had two investors fall through before we had like Union Bank of California that funded it. Um, so I was lucky we had all that money because mm-hmm. otherwise we wouldn't have been able to finish the project on time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it came in handy. So post rolling in the dough, tell us about the beginning of the end and why you left. Um, well, it, it wasn't really a beginning of an end as much as like, so we had a weird board. I mean, Goldman turned out to be just one of the worst board members of all time. And, um, um, how do you really feel? 
Oh, they all know how I really feel. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, there's probably still some stuff I probably can't talk about. But, um, or the Goldman Illuminati will come after me. Um, but, um, Can someone yeah. tweet that, please? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, like, I remember... Um, they were like, well, you can't really be CEO anymore because you're too young. And so then they brought in someone else, and then he was awful. And so then we um, laid him off. And, like, we should have gone public in 2007, but, like, which is when everybody else went public. And we could have, but then because of all the drama that Goldman created, like, we couldn't really do it. And so then we were ready to go public in, like, July of 2008. And so we filed – we almost filed our S1. And then, like, the week that we were going to file our S1, we – um, the financial crisis happened, right? So then we're like, well, that kind of sucks. Um, <laughs> so, so then, like, you know, things just kept going, and, like, I, you know, I started becoming a little smarter about how, like, venture capital works and that kind of stuff. And so, so then I was like, oh, this money is a pref above me, right? And so I have common shares, and they have preferred shares, and, okay, well, what happens in, in the financial crisis if they – if we sell the company and they're like, well, you know, these guys get paid first and then you get paid second. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. And so then, then all of these investors were like, well, Jigger, we need to raise a lot more money, right? And I was like, that doesn't sound like a good idea because then I have even more money in front of me in the pref, right? Well, they didn't really love to hear it. So then I had to leave the company and because otherwise, like, like, I would have voted against it and whatever. It didn't make a lot of sense. And so, so then um, I had already been talking to MEMC, and so I said, well, we should just sell to you guys. And so, um, but then, like, Nabil left and Ahmad came in, and so then I had to repitch Ahmad, and, um, and it worked out. And then I had to, like, force all the rest of the shareholders to go along with me because Goldman was blocking, and so then, like, we did the drag-along thing. Like, it was amazing how many, like, terms I learned in this process. Um, and... And we sold the company out from underneath, like Goldman and those guys, right? And so, and I think it was a great, it was, it was, it was a good, it was a good move. But like, I had to leave in order to do that because you can't really be a fiduciary on the board and, you know, sell the company out from underneath the investors. Mm-hmm. And then, what'd you do next? I know Carbon War Room, and then obviously now Generate. But tell us about the path there. Yeah. So after I left um, Sun Edison, like people kept calling me to do like the same thing again, and I was like. I just didn't think that was, like, the right thing to do. Like, I remember, like, folks would call me and say, hey, why don't you set up the solar division for our company or whatever it was? And that didn't seem that interesting. Um, And so, you know, I took some time off. And um, I got a call from a recruiter, and they said, hey, you know, Richard Branson's starting this thing called the Carbon Morum. You know, would you be interested? And I was like, well, that seems like something different and new. And I had been on the board of Greenpeace for, for, like, three years before that or two years before that. So um, I had been somewhat familiar with the muckraking process. Um, and, um, yeah, and so I took the job, and it was, it was like, it was crazy. It was like, you know, well, you know, I mean, like running Powerhouse, like, you know, like when you're running these kinds of organizations, whether they're a for-profit, you know, or a nonprofit, like if they act like a nonprofit, then you're basically just raising money all the time. And... I was like, wow, this is exhausting. Um, you're, like, constantly meeting rich people, being nice to them, even though they're, like, probably not nice to you. And, <laughs> like, you know, and you're like, you know, like, like I really want your money, so I'm going to bite my tongue. Um, so, um, 
But we did some really great work. I mean, you know, like a lot of, I would say like a lot of the things that I like am most known for sort of saying or believing came out of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, because to, to raise money for a nonprofit, you really have to have like conviction and your pitch has to be good and all those things. Um, and so, so it was a really great experience. And we really did have this huge impact. Because, um, you know, like it's, it's difficult for folks to, I think, remember. But like during the Copenhagen process, which is what everyone was building up to in 2009, it was like a shared sacrifice thing, right? It was like for a cup of coffee a month, like we can solve the climate change problem. And for those of you who like may think that that idea resonates, like you have to remember that there are, you know, billions of people that live without electricity or running water or other things, right? And saying to them, well, like you have to pay an extra cup of coffee a month to like actually, you know, like decarbonize the planet is fairly insulting. Um, and so we we had a point of view very early on that like the technology like in these revolutions have never really been a bad thing for GDP and growth and income and and employment and those things. And so I think we were the first ones to like sort of say that in ways that were unequivocal. And it was at the time I remember it was deeply offensive. We got like all these like I mean, they weren't death threats, so I'm not like, you know, I'm not like Katy Perry or something like that. You know, they get like death threats. But like, no, but like they like, um, but we would get these nasty grams, like because Wax and Marky was happening at the time. And we were like, well, that's stupid. And this, uh, and so like, so like, you know, so we just had to keep our mouth shut. Right. And which is fine. And um, and so but like our whole thing was that like that you have all these on entrepreneurs and innovators and other folks and they're not really being given a chance to like to sell their stuff right and and so you know Richard Branson being like the most famous entrepreneur in the world we were like well why don't we set up the nonprofit to like actually like help these entrepreneurs succeed because when Richard like hired me to the Carbon I think I got like a napkin at the Virgin Lounge that said, like, here's what the Carbon Worm's about. So, like, we had to, like, come up with what it was going to be about. Um, and so that's what we decided on. And it was, it was like, it was so inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, thousands upon thousands of entrepreneurs that were doing things, like, from making ships more efficient to, like, building efficiency, obviously, and solar and those kinds of things, but, like, water and other things. And, and they were just being held back, mostly because people just... Like, it's not a consumer good, right? Like, you actually need the government to, like, buy in and other things. And so, and by the end of the process, when the Paris Agreement occurred, like, everyone was using our talking points. Like, we were the ones who coined, like, largest wealth creation and opportunity of our lifetime. Like, you know, creating climate wealth, all that stuff. Like, those are all things that Richard said out of his mouth. And then, you know, like, I think we had 65 heads of state that used those words at Paris, right? So, um it does matter. Like, the way that this is framed, I think, does matter. And, um, yeah, so I'm really proud of that. And all of these experiences from BP to, uh, to SunEd to Carbon War Room and Now to Generate, what lessons took the longest to learn? And what do you think the entrepreneurs in the room and those listening need to know about building a company? Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of lessons. Um, I think one of the first lessons that I learned was that, like, everyone matters. And it's amazing to me how many people treat people like they don't matter. Um, And, you know, like, obviously we were just talking before about how, 
like I met Dan Rosen when he was in high school, uh, like, you know, in New Jersey. And I met Billy Parrish when he was running, like, you know, Students for Environmental Action, right? And, and I wasn't a, you know, dick to them when I met them. Um, like, I treated them with respect, and I didn't know they were going to start Mosaic in the future or whatever else. Like, I just think that people should be nice to people. And I remember, like, just, like, like I never had a problem. Like, even when I was CEO of Sun Edison and, like, you know, like, we had supposedly become somebody that, like, folks, like, looked up to. Like, like, I never had a problem giving people business cards. Like, it was amazing how many people I meet that, like, are always out of business cards. Um, and um, so that stuff was a big deal. I think the experience with Goldman was amazing. Like, I mean, obviously, we had our, our negative points on the other side. But, like, um, like, I was never afraid of working with really smart people. Like, people that obviously were way smarter than I am and, like, were, like, asking me tons and tons of questions that I didn't know the answers to. I can relate. Um, yeah. And, but that didn't scare me. Like, it's amazing to me how many people um, in this um, field, like, take really dumb money, right? Really dumb money, right? Like, they go to, like, impact investors or they go to, like, you know, some family office, high net worth individual, and they're like, yeah, here's $100,000. And then you're like, but they don't know anything about your business. They're just sort of like you and you gave a good TED Talk and whatever it is that, like, <laughs> you did to give money. And, like, they don't actually help you succeed, right? Like, and, like, you should want somebody who is so smart that they're asking you really tough questions, right? That they're telling you, wow, your business model doesn't make any sense at all. Like, you really should, like, revamp it, right? Otherwise, you waste two and a half years of your life and you fail and then you're like, oh, God, what could I have done better? Like, well, you should have had somebody who was actually, like, like writing you, like, saying, like, hey, like, this doesn't make sense. Like, explain yourself here, et cetera, right? And so we always used really smart money. I think even at Generate, we have a really super smart board that asks really tough questions that holds us to a very high standard. And we relish that because that's how you become like better at what you do. Um, I'm sure there's lots of other lessons that I learned along the process, but like, um, like HR is a big deal. Like it's amazing how many people like, um, treat HR like it's a, like, like a function. Like, and so like we always had HR as like, part of like the executive management team, like in every meeting. Um, it's actually been really hard to find the head of talent for Generate, but we're working pretty hard to fill that. But like it's, um, but yeah, like that was such a huge deal for Sun Edison and like for Carbon War Room. Like I remember my board being like, why do you have somebody that does HR? Like I was like, cause it's really important. And yeah, so that's like a big lesson. Speaking of things that are important, when we were talking about this interview, I said, is there anything other than kind of standard questions that I should ask? And you said, yeah, let's talk about women. So let's talk about women. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where I learned early on that, like, I mean, because Claire was a, you know, is a founder of um, Sun Edison that, um, like, I don't know that I appreciated it at the time, don't get me wrong, but, like, I certainly noticed that, you know, every conference was a sausage fest, and um, and I was like, you know, something's a little weird here. We should probably, like, diversify. Um, and then, like, we got really good at Sun Edison. I think when I was there, we were probably up to, like, 30 35% women, which, you know, obviously is not 50-50, but it was far better than the energy industry and certainly the solar industry. And, um, and like, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I remember thinking, like, it's not because we tried to hire women. 
right? Like th- there's this like notion that you're like, oh, like, you know, it's like Mitt Romney sort of binders full of women. Um, <laughs> like it was more just that because Claire was a founder of Sun Edison, like she naturally networked with other women. And so every time we had like a great job opening, she always had great candidates to fill it with, right? And, um, and, and so I think that people really do it wrong, right? People, like, they're always trying to fix the problem. They're like, oh, we should hire more women. And I'm like, no, you should just, like, you know, like, have more women in your executive management team so that they're networking with women, and then you find really smart women that way, and, like, you hire them. Like, it's just, like, I've, I've always found it to be very weird, right? Like, the whole way in which we talk about this, like, using numbers, like as though it's some sort of like slots to be filled or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I mean even generate. I think we've tried really hard. We we've you know struggled um, just because we are three male founders. Um, but I think we've like started to correct that with senior um, with senior women coming into the company. Mm-hmm. So we're going to move into our high voltage round, a slightly extended high voltage round, uh, starting with the question, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? Not what animal do you want to be, what animal would you be? What animal would I be? Um, Probably a hippo. (laughs) (laughs) Hippos, people don't know, hippos are vicious. They're vicious, and I really like being in the water all day. And so, perfect. I think it would be good. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Some would describe you as maybe a provocative or potentially controversial figure in clean energy. What would you say to that? Um, Well, here's the thing: is like when you start a company, like I did, and like you had like no money and like I mean there were days where I was like choosing which meals to eat and that kind of stuff like not suggesting for a moment that I was poor like that's a different thing but there were definitely like times when I was like I don't have any money in my pocket um and like I just think it's obnoxious when people in our industry are constantly cheerleading the industry when folks are like betting their houses on starting companies in this sector, right? Like, when, like most developers in this in this industry, like you know, like the way that they do their land options or interconnection studies or whatever is through their savings, right? Like, it's not like they all have big angel investors with venture capital behind them or whatever else, like to do that stuff. And I just think it's ridiculous when people just lie to people, right? And so I guess maybe I'm provocative, but I, but it's more just that I. I feel really bad that like folks get bad information from people and then they're like betting their like, you know, family's wealth on bad information. Uh, what have you found consistently most inspiring? Well, you know, it's, it's our industry, right? I mean, it's not entrepreneurs per se. It's really our industry. Like what shocks me the most, and Shale and I have had this conversation several times in the past, like, like, green tech media is always wrong to the downside as to where the market's going to be, right? And they're like, well, you know, that's just our safety premium or whatever it is. And I'm like, no, you just don't believe in our people, right? Like, like our industry always figures out how to innovate its way out of the problems, right? Like, so whether it's a Section 201 credits or whether it's this or that or net metering going down in, in Nevada or, like, we always figure out how to solve whatever problems are in front of us. So, like, I was at this utility meeting the other day and they were bitching about PERPA, right? And I was like, 
we didn't write Purpa. That was like written in the 70s. And then like we all like did our work and got these land options and did all this interconnection. And then we've like you said no to signing a PPA with us. So then we went around and figured out Purpa. And we like and you left it at 8.3 cents a kilowatt hour for 20 years. It wasn't our fault. We didn't like set it at 8.3 cents a kilowatt hour in Oregon. And so then we got this really high price contract, right? Like like that's awesome. That's our industry, right? Like and I'm inspired by that every day, right? Like we don't let like, you know, this law or this person or, you know, this initiative like get in our way. We just keep innovating around all the problems that we have and we keep getting better and better. And I just I just think it's inspiring every day. When have you failed? Uh, you know, like honestly, like I don't think in those terms like um the biggest thing I failed on, like, in a really big way was, um, was like, you know, I got married very young. So um, I got married when I was 25. And so when you start Sun Edison and you do all these things, like, there are days when you're, like, on the road, like, 70% of the time. And, um, and you start taking your family for granted and that kind of stuff. And that really sucks. And I definitely failed as a husband for a little while. And um, I'm making it up, making it up now. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's the only thing I know. Fair, I mean, fair. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's one of those things where um, people ask me all the time, like Jigger, like, how'd you learn finance? I'm like. I don't know that I still know finance. Like, <laughs> it's it's the weirdest thing. I have these two fantastic partners at Generate, and um, shout out to Scott. Yeah, and and like they are always like innovating on these like term sheets and like these agreements. Like we raise money and da da da, and like they're like, oh, what's this? And I'm like, I don't even know what half these provisions mean. Like they have these like big long term sheets and contracts and whatever else, and I'm like. Well, Jigger, you don't understand, like, they could do this, they could do that, et cetera. So, like, that to me is finance, right? Like, like what I'm really good at is sales, right? Like, that's what I do is, like, sales. But if you were like, Jigger, you're a finance guy. I'm like, no, I'm the guy who, like, got Whole Foods or Staples or whatever else to, like, sign the contract. And, and then, like, at Generate, I'm like, I'm the guy who, like, convinces the entrepreneurs to trust us with, you know, and take our money. But, like, I don't know that I'm, like, the finance guy, right? Like, it's the weirdest thing, like... Um, what you get labeled as. Um, so my parents are divorced and I know what pre-divorce conversations look like. And so I'm wondering if you and your energy gang co-host, Stephen Lacey, are going to get divorced. <laughs> are you and Stephen going to get divorced? <laughs> you know, um, no, we're okay, not going to get divorced. Okay, we good. have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. My, you know, my big thing is that like, like as we talked about in this like flash round, like I... I hate false equivalency, right? And, like, reporters, like, have to do that. And it just irks the crap out of me. Like, I am politically ambiguous, right? Like, I am not, like, this hardcore Democrat or Republican. And, and Facebook actually accuses me of being a, a hardcore Republican, which is interesting. Um, but um, I don't know if you guys know this, but, like, Facebook, like, you know, like, categorizes you, and you can see mm -hmm. where they categorize you. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and so, like, it's just, it's one of those weird things where, like, I can't stand, like, where you give both sides, like, equal 
credibility in an argument because like some sides like actually have real credibility and other sides don't and then like and it's not always the same polarity um but like you know like steven makes me like discuss both sides anyway and it bothers me (laughs) we we know (laughs) okay to close it out finish these sentences for me companies fail because they don't have good products Success is? Making a difference. My biggest regret is? I don't have any. Like, honestly, like, you know, I know this is supposed to be a fast round, but, like, (laughs) I don't love that conversation because it's sort of like saying, like, like, I could have done something different, right? Like, I couldn't, right? Like, I made the best decision with the facts that I had at the time which I had them, and... I don't, like, regret any of the decisions that I made. Some of them turned out to not be that great. But, like, all along the way, we had these extraordinary experiences, right? Like, I mean, Sun Edison, like, by far had the largest impact in the United States on, like, catapulting the solar industry. Whether it was, we had, like, at one point, we had 50% of all the full-time regulatory affairs staff in the country working for us, right? Like, I mean... Like, it was just, like, it was an amazing time. Do I regret having that many people, like, in regulatory affairs? No. Like, we had, like, I remember, like, like version 32 of our contract, like, every got leaked by Walmart. And, like, and everyone started using it. Like, and I was like, well, that sucks. Like, you know, that was, like, our intellectual property. But, like, do I regret it? No. Like, I love the fact that everyone's, like, using a financeable contract now or whatever else. Like, it's just, like... Like, there are lots of things I could have done differently, but, like, I think I did the best with what I could. I'm most proud of? I'm most proud of all the people that I've worked with, right? Like, I mean, today, like, looking at all the people across the industry that, you know, like, came through Sun Edison and worked for me at a time or, like, um, like some of them are running for Congress. Like... That's awesome. For sure. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? It, you know, it takes a level of humility around, like, what you're really trying to do, right? It's just, you know, like, it is so easy to fail, you know? And, and I know that, like, particularly, like, no, no place like the Bay Area, like, glorifies entrepreneurship and glorifies all these things but like it is so easy to fail and it's not it's not like your fault like it's just like everyone's out to get you you know like the market doesn't come together like you thought like the strategic partner that you said that said that they were gonna like like you know close with you before you left your job to like you know start the company like doesn't close like it's all really really hard and I just think that folks have to like give themselves a break and really like understand how hard it is and like be humble about the process. On that note, please give a big round of applause to Jake Shaw. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here and join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. 
What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.f-u-n-d. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.